0: I mean, I think especially given all the garbage that we've been through in the last few years, you know I mean? Those are the things that stand out to me when I go visit a place, you know, it's even if they have really good wine, if they're not welcoming and fun and kind, I'm not gonna go back there. Life is too short. A million things have taught me that lesson, you know, losing people I love and having to jump through all the hoops for just to welcome people into the tasting room. You know, we'll do whatever we have to do, but the most fundamental thing is that is the most fun that we have, is when people come visit and they have a great time and we get to enjoy a stunningly beautiful view of Napa Valley and drink some wine and have a great experience.
1: Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dave Miner. He's the owner of Miner Family Winery, located where else? Napa Valley, California. What you'll hear today is how entrepreneurial paths are anything but linear how Dave Miner wants to do away with the pretentiousness of wine tasting, and lastly, his take on where the wine industry is going as young audiences come on the scene. Also, I should mention that Dave is part owner of Benedetto Guitars, and he indulged me by playing a little jazz ditty during our interview. So, you'll hear his riffs throughout our combo, and there's lots to get to, so let's dig in.
0: Well, I grew up in a family that just had wine on the table all the time. I grew up in like the Chicago area, but my grandfather had grown up with grapevines, So he made wine in his basement in Cicero, Illinois. And I moved to California as a young teenager, like 13. And my uncle moved to San Francisco and he bought a vineyard and started keeping the tradition going. But I started collecting wines probably in my early 20s. And my love of wine grew from there mm. as I made my way through college and professional life in the software business and hung out in Napa a lot because he had vineyards and we played tennis together. And then at some point, he just said, hey, do you want to come run my little winery for me?
1: And this is your uncle?
0: My uncle, Bob Miner. Yeah. OK. So he was one of the founders of Oracle. Oh. He and I played tennis together. We drank wine together. We Collected wines together.
1: Oracle, as in like Oracle, the software company. Right. (laughs) Not a small company that he founded, by the way. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, but when he started it, it was dinky. Wow. It it was four misfits that left IBM and said, let's do
1: something crazy. Oh, amazing. God bless. I love it. And then, so he said, hey, do you want to come run my winery for me? And you're like, yeah.
0: It took me all of one second to quit my job. I was living in Houston, Texas at the time. I think I covered up the phone and yelled across the hall to my boss. I quit.
1: No, you did not. I'm out. You're kidding. I love it. So I was going to ask you about your aha moment, but it sounds like that it was more of like a Yahoo moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, I stumbled my way or lied my way into every job I've ever had. So, you know, it was This was like a stumble, a really good stumble. And it was never anything that entered my mind that I really wanted to be in the wine business. But I loved wine and I had gotten to know the process a little bit by hanging out in the vineyard and being able to blend with them and barrel taste things. And, you know, it's kind of a very romantic notion, Mm -hmm. but it's really like a lot of hard work as well. Yeah. And at that time, my uncle was also sick and I knew he was probably not, Gonna survive. He was only fifty-two and had everything to live for. So that also pushed me to do something that I loved, as opposed to doing something just to make money. Mm -hmm. Because life is short, and I had lost other family members at very young age. So it pushed me to do something that made sense to me, that I could see myself doing the rest of my life, and that I really loved, as opposed to just doing something to make a living.
1: Amen to that. I think that's great. So minor family winery has been around for over twenty years at this point.
0: Yes, I started with him running Oakville Ranch, which is his label in nineteen ninety three and then in nineteen ninety six was our first vintage under the minor family label as well, so I ran both wineries until about two thousand and then my uncle had passed away, and my aunt kind of split off. She wanted to do kind of an all female business, which I've supported it wholeheartedly as the father of two daughters. Hmm. And so she hired a female winemaker and female general manager, and they ran off and did their thing.
1: Very cool. So tell me what makes Minor Family Wine special and what makes the experience of being there special. What makes the wine itself special 20 years running? Talk about that a little bit.
0: My philosophy, I guess, in terms of hospitality is... Everyone that walks through the front door is a potential customer for life, and we need to treat them like family from the word go. A lot of places in Napa have a tendency to be a little stuffy, a little preachy, a little arrogant, and that to me is not what wine is all about. I mean, wine is kind of the ultimate Let's have a great meal and have a great conversation. And wine is the lubricant that makes that all happy. Mm-hmm. So it should be a happy thing. And there's no secret knowledge about it. People have a tendency not to trust their own palates when it comes to wine. But you've been eating food with your mouth for whole life. And you know what you like. You know what tastes good. You mm-hmm. might not have the vocabulary to describe what you're tasting. Mm-hmm. But you know the differences between what you like and what you don't like. Yeah. And that's the key. It's just fermented grape juice. What we try to do from a winemaking perspective is grow grapes in the right spot, in the right climate, and also buy grapes from other growers from different areas to produce what I would consider to be the most balanced, classic, high quality style of that particular grape. Yeah. And you can't grow all grapes in one spot. I mean, most of our stuff comes from Napa, but I also get Pinot from Monterey, where the weather and the soil are more conducive to that variety. I get Sangiovese from Mendocino, and we try to find the right microclimate for the right grape and the right grower who knows what our goals are in terms of quality and produce wines that are very classic stylistically and that are balanced and have elegance and enhance your meal. Yeah. So we do a lot of different varieties, way more than a lot of wineries, but they're all very small production and they're all made by hand with love, with attention to detail because that's the fun of it.
1: Yeah. So the making by hand, tell us a little bit about that as opposed to there's another winery down the road who does not do that same process.
0: In general, smaller producers tend to be much more particular about how grapes are picked where they come from, how you process them. And like anything, you can pay more attention when you have smaller quantities to deal with. And you can do certain kinds of things in the winery with small quantities that you really can't do when you're doing large volume. Right. For example, Pinot Noir, we ferment those in picking bins, not in tanks. So we punch down the skins which is a process you do with all red wines. And we do that by hand every day while it's fermenting.
1: So we don't
0: put it in a big tank. We don't pump anything. We just do it by hand.
1: Very cool. So you mentioned that you offer more varietals than, say, the average. Can you just talk a little bit about what you do offer and which ones you consider to be beneficial of your smaller batch scale?
0: We do a lot of wine. So we make Sauvignon Blanc. Viognier, which is a white grape from the Rhone Valley. Also, Marsan, Roussanne, which are white grapes, and then a bunch of different Chardonnays. So those are our white grape varieties. And then we make quite a few Pinot Noirs. We make Merlot, Cab, Cab Franc, Little Malbec, Little Petit Verdot. Those are classic Bordeaux reds.
1: You're covering a lot of bases, yeah.
0: We make Sangiovese and a rose out of Sangiovese,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And then we do a bunch of red Rhone grapes. So we do Grenache, Mouved, Cinso, sometimes a little Cunoise, Syrah. And we blend some of those and we make some of those just single varietal.
1: Okay.
0: That's a lot more things than most wineries do. Yeah. Some of them are 100, 200 case production, and some of them are maybe 1,000 case production. There are a lot of producers that make Sauvignon Blanc, for example, and they make thirty, forty thousand 40,000 cases of Sauvignon Blanc or somebody really big like Mondavi or Gallo or something like that. They might make 15 different Sauvignon Blancs and they're making 500,000 cases of Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. Overall, right now, I'm only making about 20,000 cases a year across 28 different wines. So... Okay. Nothing is bigger than a few thousand cases at the very most.
1: You have to really understand agriculture or at least surround yourself with people who understand agriculture. Do you want to talk about that side of the business?
0: I mean, it's fun. It's also the most difficult part because you don't really have any control. Yeah. I grew up in cornfields in Illinois, but I was never a farmer. You know, my dad wasn't a farmer, but we had a great old school vineyard manager at Oakville Ranch when I first started working there, who didn't go to school to study grape growing. He was a farmer his whole life. He grew plums and made prunes and he grew everything. So I just got to know from him how to look at a plant and see if it's healthy, how to grow wine grapes in really terrible soil, which is kind of what they like.
1: Tell us more about that. Wine
0: grapes like to struggle and you don't want to overcrop things. And so typically a lot of our grapes come from hillside vineyard, mountain vineyards where there's not a lot of moisture in the soil. The moisture could be a couple hundred feet down mm. and they struggle and that keeps the yields low and allows them to ripen more evenly and produce an intensity that you're not going to get in really shallow, rich floodplain soil. Interesting. Rich soil somewhere. Really black, rich, you know, very moist soil, it's going to produce a lot of leaves and a lot of fruit, which you then have to cut back a lot to get the balance and the intensity that you want.
1: You learned all of this by essentially watching and learning from your family and not having any professional certification or courses or anything like that.
0: Correct. I mean, I have a degree in English and American literature.
1: (laughs) Well, that comes in handy on the website, maybe. Uh,
0: Writing back labels. Yeah, yeah. I know how to punctuate.
1: What's interesting about that is often on the podcast, I talk about and have guests talk about their entrepreneurial journey as to how they got to where they are and the journey about creating their business. And I think it's important. Because a lot of times people kind of, they're up in their head and they stall and they think they need a certain degree. They need a certain financial backing or whatever boxes they feel like they need to check. And your story is a perfect example of you learned, you had a passion for it and you made it happen and you didn't have anything standing your way on the way there. I
0: think that is Certainly my story, I mean, there are a lot of people in the wine business who went to school, have degrees in enology, viticulture, and know more than I do, certainly from a scientific standpoint. But I also have people that work with me who have degrees in that. My head wine director at Minor has been with me about 25 years, but he didn't go to school for wine either. He learned the same way I did. I mean, just by working in cellars and working his way up, All the people that now work for him all pretty much have degrees. So those are things that are important. Yeah. But I think winemaking is one of the disciplines that doesn't necessarily rely wholly on science. I mean, there's a gut decision-making process that I go through that just from visual inspection and flavor that doesn't necessarily rely 100% on science. So it's a balance of science and art, which to me makes wine great. Yeah. You can certainly make wine 100% by the book using numbers and Yeah. you can make additives and do things to it that will make it taste the same year in and a year out, but that's not what we do. I mean, I want to taste that year, that vintage, you know, if it's a cooler year, I want to taste that in the wine. If it's a warmer year, I want to taste that in the wine. You know, you can make it like beer or soda pop, where it tastes the same all the time. That's completely uninteresting to me.
1: Yeah, I could see that. It's definitely nuanced. But I think what you said earlier is for people to trust your palate. It doesn't have to be this stressful experience where you think you need to know a lot about it.
0: There's no right answer or wrong answer. And There are people who make wine completely differently from the way I do it, and that's fine too. You know, that's their decision, not mine. People think that there's something that they don't know and they're afraid. And the reality is, if you don't like it, don't drink it. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. It's not solving the world's problems. We're simply fermenting grapes into wine and making people happy.
1: And there it is. That just might be my favorite brand purpose. We just want to ferment grapes into wine and make people happy, boom. Dave's entrepreneurial journey was not linear and he wasn't afraid to learn on the job either. Sometimes we need to take that leap with our gut and figure out the rest. Miner's decision to be a small batch production allows control over the wine quality when many things in agriculture, frankly, are really out of your control. But it seems that Dave embraces winemaking as a true blend of art and science, taking pride in offering nuance that you can actually taste from one year to the next. I get it. It's the same in my world too, kind of. I mean, you could be a researcher and report on findings, or you could be a strategist and dig into and understand why the question was even posed in the first place. Whether it's art or science, Minor Family Winery cultivates a brand purpose that really does transcend what's in the bottle to focus on the experience. Let's listen to how they do that. So speaking of harnessing joy, I can't help to notice that you have a Benedetto t-shirt going on. So talk to me about the event experiences that you've been able to create over the years. And I'm really interested in not just the events, but why do you think that that's a natural fit into the brand of Minor Family Winery?
0: My relationship with Benedetto Guitars started probably 20 years ago when I first met Bob Benedetto. Over time, I invested in this guitar making business. And I've always been a big music lover. I grew up with a lot of music. My aunt was a classical cellist. My parents always played opera when I was young, which drove me insane, but (laughs) music was a big part of my life as well. And I think the two things really come together. I mean, when you're drinking wine, having a great meal, having conversations, listening to music, to me, all those things are part of what makes life enjoyable. And so I've gotten involved in. Benedetto guitars and playing music. So we bring those all together at the winery a lot. We do a dinner, a wine release party, and have jazz musicians come play and create an event that brings a diverse number of people together, which is also one of the beauties of both jazz and wine. Mm-hmm. You can get inexpensive wine. You don't need to be wealthy to have good wine. And it brings culturally diverse people together. And you have a glass of wine, you listen to some music, and all those things fall away. Everybody's the same. Yeah. That's joy.
1: Well said. I wanted to ask you about your customer base. Do you think that that's part of your longstanding success, that you really don't have one type of customer? And that these events, as you said, bring out a diverse crowd and diverse palates and exposes minor to other people, maybe who haven't been exposed before, wouldn't you say? Yeah.
0: Over the 20 whatever years I've been doing this, the customer base has changed. The next generation of wine drinkers are totally different from the old guy collectors we used to have 20 years ago. How so? When I first started in the wine business, there weren't a lot of wineries and the ones that were really kind of cool and high end were very small. And so you had a group of very wealthy individuals that were looking for the next cool thing, and they wanted to find it and get them for a low price, sell her those wines. And most of them, though, were interested in drinking those wines. It wasn't like some trophy. Mm. And over the years now, you have a different group of people that are spending lots of money, and they're buying ridiculously expensive wines to hang on their wall and show off to their friends, whether they drink them or not. And I would say most of them probably don't drink them. Right. That to me makes no sense. If you don't pull the cork and drink it, you kind of miss the point. Yeah. But as new generations come into the wine business, there's a lot of things that can be very trendy. Wines in aluminum cans, wines in tag, weird things like white cloth. And now you have this big surge in hard ciders and things like that. So the number of products out there now is like crazy. Mm-hmm. And the younger generation doesn't care about the snotty, highfalutin, <laughs> secret society of cool wine, which is a good thing. Yeah. So you get people that are more willing to try new things, different varietals. Most Americans don't know what Viognier is or Marsan, but the younger generation seems to me to be unafraid to try. And that's a great thing. Part of being a popular brand is being able to improvise. It's like jazz in so many ways. When something changes, you have to be able to like make something up on the fly. Yeah, And that's fun. And it's also necessary. Wines that we produce are very classic and they have historical references. A lot of people these days will blend grapes that have no historic or geographic connection or reference point. Mm-hmm. And they're making wines that, people enjoy drinking. But for me, if you can't discern what grape it is or what style or what region, you don't have that reference point. So stylistically, we don't tend to chase the trends. We try to stay in our lane and make classic well-made balanced wines. And I haven't really chased the aluminum can thing, but you have to adapt how you attract people. And how easy you make it for them to enjoy these things without being snotty or secretive or Are you cool enough to come in my front door.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Anybody's cool enough to come in my front door. and We're not going to be pretentious or make them feel like they don't know anything. To me, that's the very first and foremost thing. You know, when we hire people, you can teach them about wine. You can't teach them to be kind and be decent and to not be judgmental. So I don't want any of those things in my hospitality center. That doesn't work.
1: Ain't that the truth. Unless you're a toddler, you really can't teach people how to be kind and decent. What I'm hearing is that Dave appreciates the innovation he sees within his industry, but yet he chooses to remain focused on mastery versus experimenting. The important takeaway here is how Minor Family Winery intends to foster a welcoming atmosphere, whether in the tasting room or hosting an event. Dave and his team creates a memorable brand experience at these events with great jazz music, delicious food, and their wines. I mean, besides that being the trifecta of life, it's pretty much the trifecta of branding when you think about how experiences are cemented into our brain. Those events are such sensory experiences that there's no comparison when you think about the effectiveness of other marketing channels. I know events tend to be expensive for brands to put on, but in the end, you'll create an unforgettable association, so it's worth considering even if you start small. I'd love to understand if your values and your purpose drive your marketing efforts and kind of what you do.
0: Over the years, I've worked very hard to travel and do events and support my distributors because the alcohol business is complicated when it comes to selling wine, because you have to go through distributors around the country. But in general, our approach has always been more word of mouth. So it's more about people. We've tried using PR firms and tried to woo wine writers and things like that. And we send samples out. But after a while, I got tired of trying to do that and trying to smooch people's bottoms and stuff like that. I'm, it's not me. So if they like my wine and they like what we do, then the word spreads. They tell their friends. Their friends come to the winery. They have a great time. And I like to do fun events like wine dinners around the country or wine festivals. And we'll pair wine with music, different venues around the country. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the best way I can think of to spread our name is through experiences and not necessarily through ratings or people writing articles, which are usually things that my marketing person wrote and they just edit and put on there. Yeah. I can do that myself quite easily. (laughs)
1: Uh-huh.
0: I obviously make this wine, so people are going to go, well, he made that. Of course he thinks it's great. Yeah. The wine speaks for itself. You pull the cork and we make a lot of different wines. So if somebody comes to the winery, it's hard for them to not find a wine or two that they like because yeah. there's a broad range of styles of wine. There's crisper wines, lighter wines. There's lighter reds, there's heavy reds. Hopefully they all have great balance and structure and character and they're unique yeah to me the personal part of it is really what drives it home because i'm not trying to sell wine to costco or supermarkets i don't have to move 50 million cases of something if you're doing that all those other things probably need to come into play right but for me it's it's a very personal experiential driven thing and then. People remember they had that wine. It's a great time. They had their friends. It was somebody's anniversary. I love giving wines to my friends when they get married mm-hmm. because it's like, how cool is it to be that significant a part of somebody's great event? Yeah. You remember that for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, completely. I literally can't wait to pick up my wine up tonight. <laughs> can't wait to try it. It's my personal belief that behind every brand is a raw truth. And the way that I define raw truth is like, what's the thing that's distinctive and unchangeable by marketing or business objectives? So I would love to understand what are those characteristics about Minor Family Winery that you would say are distinctive and unchangeable?
0: I think from a winemaking perspective, it's all about quality and art and style and balance. Those things are things that I am not ever going to change. They're uncompromising in that regard. And if we're making wine that I don't personally like, that I'm not excited to take home and drink, then I'm doing something wrong. Right. It's not what I want to do. and It's not why I do this. I certainly don't get rich doing this. The only reason I do it is because I love doing it. And there's something really wonderful and fulfilling about it. From a winemaking perspective, those things are key. But also hospitality. It's a personal commitment to kindness and quality and having a good time
1: kindness. I don't think I ever really heard it worded in that way. And you mentioned hospitality a few times. I just don't ever really feel that or remember that from any winery or tasting room I've ever visited before. And I think that that's really unique. Very cool.
0: I think especially given all the garbage that we've been through in the last few years, those are the things that stand out to me when I go visit a place. Even if they have really good wine, if they're not welcoming and fun and kind, I'm not going to go back there. Yep. Life is too short.
1: Amen to that.
0: A million things have taught me that lesson, losing people I love and having to jump through all the hoops just to welcome people into the tasting room.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. We'll do whatever we have to do. But the most fundamental thing is that is the most fun that we have is when people come visit. And they have a great time and we get to enjoy a stunningly beautiful view of Napa Valley and drink some wine and have a great experience.
1: Yep. Are you fully open now? I saw on your site, like it's by appointment, but generally speaking.
0: Yeah. And we have a permit to be a fully open tasting room, which you really can't get in Napa anymore. So we can open the doors and let anybody who wants walk in. But prior to COVID, I realized that if we let too many people mm-hmm. in, we can't take care of them. Sure. So we used to have Saturdays in the summer where there's so many people in the tasting room that people are yelling and like, I'm on number four. And my servers are like pouring with both hands trying to chase people around. Yeah. And it was mayhem and I couldn't take care of anybody well. So we went to an appointment model because then I know who's coming, Yeah. how much staff that I need. And we take care of people better and we have a more personal experience and we can explain to them who we are and what we do, which is the key. So now we're appointment only, but we're open. I feel like we're on the cusp of kind of getting back to whatever the new normal is going to be. Yeah. So it's great. And weekends we're booking up for weeks ahead now. So it's great.
1: Oh, cool. The appointment model, that's so smart because I think everybody has been in the tasting room, when like the bachelorette bus rolls in, and you're just like, Jesus, God, help me. That's the scourge and, of my
0: existence.
1: <laughs> right. And it, you're just like, oh my Lord. Yeah. So I could see that really working out, you know, having that appointment model. And that's nice because it also seems very on brand for you, which is you want to create a certain experience in that tasting room and you just can't do that if it's complete mayhem in there. Yeah, You can't serve them well. And I think that that's really smart. So minor family wines, you're distributed nationwide?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's maybe four or five States we're not in. Okay. Um, and we also sell a little bit. I have some friends in France. They sell a little bit in France, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't buy a lot of American wine and a little bit in Asia.
1: I just see on your site that Miner has also been at the White House for a few dinners, which is very cool.
0: Yeah, I think five or six occasions.
1: How do you get that gig?
0: Well, the guy who is the steward who managed the wine program there was a guy that had here in Napa, he'd been at Shandon. And we just bumped into him at an event in D.C. one time, and he said, like, I totally have forgotten about your wines. I love your wines. We need to get them. And I'm like, awesome. And then he would use them for specific dinners, and then we'd get the menu with the wines and the food and why the dinner was happening, and he'd write a little thing about, we chose this wine to go with this course for this reason, and a beautiful presentation. So we have those all framed. That's so great. It's quite an honor, and traditionally, they've focused on American wines at the White House. At some point, I mean, they used to have a lot of French wine as well, and their cellar is Mm. crazy. But (laughs) I think... Have you seen it? I have not been in it, but my sales manager has been in it. Okay. But that's cool.
1: been in business for a really long time and you've been doing what you do and you obviously love what you do. What surprised you during this whole journey that you've been taking?
0: I get surprised on a regular basis, I think. But <laughs> the way things have changed over 25 years in Napa has been pretty dramatic, I would say. When we first started, you know, we were super small, like 3,000 cases. And in the early 90s, we are selling Cabernet for like 45 bucks a bottle, which at that point was astronomical. And all the big wineries were like, you know, there's a whole bunch of little producers that were making small quantities of really good wine and charging 45 bucks. And then all the big guys were like, who the hell are these guys? You know, they're nobody. Yeah. But everybody was very passionate about what we did. And from there to now, now people are charging $1,000 a bottle for some stuff that's like unrecognizable wine to me. Mm. So I think from a marketing standpoint, things have gone astronomical in the wine business. It's gone from being like a group of little farmer guys who, and I love hanging out with those guys to all these big corporate guys or some guy with billions of dollars comes in and drops 50 million bucks on some big homage winery to something lacking in their life. But they're absentee guys. Mm. You know, they're not there. They're not in the vineyard. They're not blending. They're not doing any of that. They just hire people and, and go. So that to me is surprising and also disappointing in a lot of ways. And mm. the corporatization of what I do, both in the wine business and in the guitar business, to me is very disturbing. And it's frustrating in a lot of ways to see something that's artisanal and beautiful and wonderful turn into McDonald's. I don't think that'll happen. There are still a lot of small producers, but the corporatization of distributors and producers is crazy.
1: We did talk about this last time that I think the silver lining in this worry that you have, which is a real worry is Gen Z as the next up and coming generation, they do not want mainstream USA anything. So I think they will always seek out the special, the nuanced, the personal, the experience and I think for that reason alone, I don't think it'll ever go away of having that specialness, whether it's we're talking about wine or food or guitars.
0: I'm still very hopeful. I mean, from a financial standpoint, it's more and more difficult to do what I do and survive yeah. because everything gets driven up in that model. But the great thing about human beings is that even when things get hard, it seems to me like they innovate even harder yep. and new things come. I find that even in bigger issues like climate change and I think even like oil companies and stuff like that are starting to look and go, we got to figure out some other way to do this. And it, it drives innovation and it doesn't necessarily happen at the big corporate level. Sometimes it happens at the grassroots level. So yeah. I mean, that gives me hope. Uh, I love seeing, you know, little people like come up with some cool thing and have it take off. Yeah. In Napa, it's great because there's more and more Hispanic families starting new wineries. Their kids now are growing up, not picking grapes. They're running wineries. They're owning land. And oh, very cool. There's still these little glimmers of the American dream that happen as hard as sometimes people try to keep those different things out, Mm -hmm. they're taken over. And that's, I find that to be a beautiful thing.
1: Is there any place that you haven't taken the vineyard that you still kind of have on your list that you'd like to achieve a certain thing?
0: I had a friend in town recently who hadn't been to Napa and we went out and (laughs) visited other wineries. And I visited a friend of mine's winery over in Sonoma and he does biodynamic farming, which it's a very complex system, and some of it is kind of quasi-religious and weird. And I'm all for the dancing naked under the moonlight in the vineyard thing. I don't know that it makes your wine better, but <laughs> why not? You know, it is, certainly would be fun. <laughs> but he's doing some of the coolest things. They organically grow all these other plants that help with pest control. And they help with mold and mildew control. Mm. They've got mason bees that they raise around that pollinate like 10 times faster than european honeybees they don't sting so the natural solutions to some of the problems that we face as farmers instead of using pesticides which Mm -hmm. i think most people have gone away from uh, herbicides but doing things in a more natural way which i think is easier on a small scale yeah in some sense I would love to start over, even though I'm getting old and I'm not sure I really want to do that and do it that way, you know, do it small, like make tea out of flowers and use that as your mold and mildew control. And just being in his vineyard, there's so much more to life in that vineyard, like birds and animals. And then you look at another vineyard that's farmed less dynamically. Yeah. Sometimes you look at it and it's like, this is like scorched earth, you know, the the animals are gone, the plants are gone. Interesting. That to me is exciting. And some of it can get very trendy. I mean, like the organic thing and, and natural thing and all that. Yeah. And some of it is bullshit, but <laughs> some of it is really, really interesting and dynamic and effective. And I would love to pursue that more and take the parts that are, even this place isn't certified. Because I think he also thinks that some of the things are mm. quasi-religious mm-hmm. and weird. But, I mean, those things intrigue me and get me excited also about farming again. It's it's cool.
1: That is very cool. I like that for you. I need to understand about the Benedetto guitar, the Cabernet Stained guitar. I know, obviously, you provide them with the bottle. But, like, <laughs> you know, t- tell people about this because I think it's amazing.
0: Right about the time that I met Bob and I was having him build my first guitar, I also had a friend who worked at Fender Guitars. And he and Bob knew each other because they had kind of a relationship for a while. And it was kind of his idea. He said, hey, let's, we do the Napa Wine Auction every year. It's a charity wine auction. And we donate a bunch of stuff. And everybody's always trying to come up with unique things. And he said, why don't we stain a Fender Stratocaster with wine and auction it off at the wine auction. I'm like, that's a cool idea. Do you know how to do that? And he's like, I think I do. So he stained a guitar. He was Ensenada, Mexico at the time. So he went out and bought some Cabernet that was made in Ensenada and he stained a guitar with it and he sent me the guitar I still have it. And he said, this works. This one was stained with wine. And so I sent him some of my wine and he stained it and it came out a little more purple and cool. And we auctioned it off and we got like $40,000 for this guitar with a oh my six liter, a large format bottle of minor wine. And a, a guy from Hollywood who was a producer of Everybody Loves Raymond, delightful human being. And his son had been taking guitar lessons. So he's like, we'll buy it. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, man, I could have gotten you that guitar for 800 bucks. He's like, I have a lot of money and it's a good charity. So. So I told Bob that we had done this and and what the guitar went for. And, Mm. and so he said, send me some stain. So I sent him a case of red wine and he started playing with it. And he said, this is great. This is going to work. I'm going to stain your guitar with wine. And then. I got the guitar and it was stunningly beautiful. And so then we started doing this every year where we'd stain a guitar. I'd just tell him what size and shape I wanted. And he'd stain a guitar and I wouldn't know what he was doing until I got the guitar. And he did different inlays. Oh, okay. I sent him some French oak barrel wood. So he made one that had all this French oak barrel wood inlay on the body and then the headstock.
1: Okay, so you're not part of the process at all. Benedetto's basically, you give me the goods, you relax, yep. and I'm going to send you the finished product and you're going to love it. Yeah, I don't
0: make guitars. I mean, I obviously am part owner of the company now, but I don't make guitars. I just love yeah. woodworking, but Yeah. But yeah, between Bob and his apprentice Damon Myland, who's our current luthier, they build these guitars and we have a master stain guy who does the stain work now, but they mix reduced wine with uh, something called dragon's blood, which is a violin maker's tool, which is a plant extract, actually. It's not mm. anyone's blood. <laughs> and they do 40 coats of wine mm. on the back and sides. And then they put a nitrocellulose lacquer over it. And it's unbelievable. It's a great work of it's art. Stunning. And it also sounds really good. So Yeah, right. So we've done like, Ten of them, I think, so far for me, and there's two more of them in the works.
1: Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want people to know about Minor Family Vineyards?
0: Well, I mean, for me, the people should come check it out for themselves. Enjoy the experience. We have the best view in Oakville. You sit up on the hill and you look out over the whole valley. And We have decks. We have guitars. We do a lot of events that... Involve music and food and wine, and the experience I think is really the key. Everybody loves coming to Napa. There's a bazillion things to do, Sonoma, San Francisco. Yeah. But those experiences are more valuable than anything you own. Mm -hmm. Come see us and hang out and come to our events in August. We'll be doing our annual Benedetto release party a concert so we produce the benedetto cabernet now and we release it in august we have a bunch of musicians come and play out on the loading dock under the stars it's a lot of fun
1: that's cool well i'm gonna have to make my way out there
0: you're welcome anytime
1: well that wraps my conversation with dave minor i want to pull out a few takeaways to apply to your business First, let's talk about the Minor Family Wines brand purpose, which is fermenting grapes into wine and making people happy. It's amazingly humble and simple, and it strikes the perfect balance between what they functionally do with why they do it. And whether or not it's actually written down somewhere, it captures the spirit of why Dave and his team are even in business. When ideas start to get complicated and they aren't making themselves or their customers happy, they know that they need to move on to the next idea. A good brand purpose should be used to vet important decisions. Secondly, the focus on small batch wine production could take a winery into a place of exclusivity. But in Miner's case, Dave's determination to make the tasting room an open and welcoming environment has been the key to creating new fans while really cementing loyalty. This is another pattern that I keep seeing with founders that I've had on the show. Sometimes success means saying no to business. It would be really easy for Miner to pack that tasting room in every weekend with walk-ins, when instead they take appointments so they can confidently deliver an experience customers want and deserve. And this approach also keeps employees really sane in the process. So let's talk about events. I don't think Dave even thinks about their events as quote-unquote event marketing because he's looking at it from the human standpoint of experiencing the three things that he's personally passionate about, music, food, and wine, the ultimate connector. These memorable events are rooted in the philosophy of hospitality, charity, and inclusiveness, and they bring all people together, and they leave the heirs at the door. I love that. And lastly, just like any industry, there will always be a David battling a Goliath. And there's always going to be people who need and appreciate what both have to offer. But Minor Family Wines is the place where any wine palate can experience what happens when farming, art, and even a little kindness comes together in a glass. You can learn more about Dave and Minor Family Winery at minorwines.com. This has been an episode of uncooked. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at brand crudo, a marketing consultancy. If you want to discuss how your company can take advantage of any of these marketing concepts that I discussed with Dave, such as activating your brand purpose and putting it into marketing. This is what I do every day. You can find my contact info on brandcrudo.com or the show notes. If you like what you heard, definitely follow the show, share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening.